Amen. We are still in the Sermon on the Mount. I told uh, Mr. Robert Land this morning that when he gets tired of that, just to let me know, and we'll move on to something else. He said, what's the message on this morning? I said, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, oh, still? So, I don't think he meant it the way I took it, but anyway, <clears throat> we are still here. We're at this our fourth week here. Um, we'll be here for a while. I'm trying to get it, get through it efficiently and properly before Easter. It's probably not going to happen. There's just too much there, but I'm trying. Um, that's, the, that's the hope. I do want to tell you, though, uh, as we get into today, so I don't forget later on, uh, not this coming Sunday, but the next, so I believe March 12th, March 13th, whichever day that is, the Sunday, we will uh, have a special guest that day. Dr. Sam Roberts from the State Convention will be coming that day to bring the message. Um, so looking forward to that. He's a, he's a great guy, wonderful man. He's been pastoring in the, in the Delta area for a long, long, long time, and he has moved on um, onto the full-time role at the State Convention. He's a good man, and I'm and looking forward to him bringing a word to us. So we're on our fourth week. We've gone through three weeks of the Sermon on the Mount already. The first part, we looked at the Beatitudes and how Jesus taught us how to be happy, how to be happy, satisfied, and uh, consider ourselves fortunate. The people that are that are those who have the correct heart towards their sin, their Lord, Jesus, and towards the world. Nothing shakes them. And in the second week, we looked at salt and light uh, bring out the God flavors and God colors of His kingdom and make people open up to their generous Father in heaven, that when we, we live out our God-given purpose, we draw people to the Lord. And then last week we looked at in God's kingdom, Jesus has fulfilled the law of righteousness and by faith expects us to live up to the law's highest standard. And that highest standard is how we treat each other. That's the rule that we looked at last week, the, the rule of Christ's law. What are the rules to be a servant in Christ's kingdom? It's Christ's law, his law of righteousness, which he told us, uh, which he explained very simply, that we are to love each other the way he has loved us. He told the disciples that the night before he was going to be crucified the next day. Um, and then the rest of the sermon is how to do that. That's what the rule is. Now, how do you do that? How do you live that out? What does that look like? Uh, and so the first part of that what we're getting to today is the standard for kingdom, kingdom servants. And we're going to look through Matthew 21 through 48, which I know is a long uh, batch of scripture, which means we can't dilly-dally very long if we're going to get through all of that. But as we look at that, thinking about what it means to have a standard, right? What does it mean to have a standard? Here's some numbers, excuse me, based on 2015 numbers. So they're a little bit different now, but if 99% were good enough, then this is what would still happen based on 2015 numbers. Uh, four plane landings daily at O'Hare International Airport in Chicago would be unsafe. Uh, one million documents would be lost by the tax man. There'd be a major plane crash every two hours. There would be 47,000 ATM errors every hour. There would be 880,000 credit cards in circulation uh, that will turn out to have incorrect cardholder information on their magnetic strips. Uh, there'd be 15,517,200 cases of soft drinks produced in the next 12 months. That would be flat. Uh, 415 entries into Webster's New International English Dictionary will be misspelled. 591 pacemaker operations will be performed incorrectly this year if 99% is good enough. Uh, 
3,468,500 defective tires will be shipped this year, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. If 99% were good enough, that's how much of those things we would still have that were, that were wrong. That's what a standard is, right? It's what is acceptable. Below standard is not acceptable. Up to standard is acceptable. And that's what we're looking at today is what, what is the standard as a follower of Jesus, as a servant in the king's kingdom, what is the standard? And there was, it, there's a story that I, that I read getting ready for this, this sermon. It said uh, that every day there was a man that used to walk by a jewelry store and he would stop and he would set his watch by the big clock in the, in the jewelry store, in the window of the jewelry store. And then one day the jeweler happened to be standing there as this guy walked by and asked him what he was doing. He said, I see that you, you set your watch by my clock. He said, what kind of work do you do that demands such a correct time each day? He said, well, I'm the watchman at the plant down the street, and my job is to blow the five o'clock whistle every day. And the jeweler was startled, and he said, no, you can't, you can't do that. He said, I set my clock by your whistle when it blows at five o'clock every day. That doesn't feel like what it feels like sometimes living in this world, but the point is standards matter, right? Standards matter. What are our standards? We're looking at today what's, what's commonly called by theologians and scholars as the six antitheses of Jesus, right? He says this, but I say this. You have heard this, but I say this. Six antitheses, six opposing statements. And he goes on several other teachings and things throughout the sermon, but these six antitheses kind of stand out. I'm going to read through just the you have heard it said, and this is what I say first, and then we'll go through the entire batch of this scripture. So starting in verse 21, just the, the statements. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, literally to the ancients, to those that received the, first, the law the first time at Sinai, to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Six statements that don't cover everything that it is to be human. I mean, it hits a lot of what it is to be human. But six statements, six things that were, that were from the law, so to speak. And then Jesus says, but here's what I tell you. Six statements stated about 2,000 years ago that were hard to hear then and are almost, if not harder, to hear and accept today. As we dig into that, I think you'll agree with me by the time we get to the end. But those six things, six things that Jesus sets the standard for. Murder, adultery, divorce, swearing, payback. And love for neighbors. We dig into these six things. If you'll join me in prayer. Lord, I come to you this morning, God, and I, <clears throat> God, I just pray that you would be with us here in this place, Lord. That there would be nothing 
hindering your spirit from moving this morning, God, that there would be nothing between any of us that would keep us from worshiping and experiencing whatever it is you have for us this morning, God. May our hearts be open, our ears be open. May your word speak. May you speak through me, God, and to me. May you bring us to a point that we know you better or we know you for the first time today, Lord. Whatever the case may be, may you do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's dig into these six antitheses that Jesus gets into here. The first one, starting in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. And I assure you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Now, of the six antitheses, this is the one that gets the most verses. It gets the most stuff. This first one, right? This, this, this standard clarified on what it means to not be a murderer. And the, and the overarching theme, really the overarching theme of all of it, but especially this first antithesis, is that reconciliation is greater than religion. Reconciliation is greater than religion. I forgot to remind you of this before we started. Excuse me. If you'd like to take notes, fbcdan.com, media, underneath media it says sermon notes. And what I have here on the screen is there for you. You can take notes and then email it to yourself at the end of the sermon for those of you that like to do that. So Jesus here, he first, he, I mean, this is directly from the, the Ten Commandments, right? This is directly from the Ten. Like, do not murder. Exodus 20.13, Deuteronomy 5.17. It's a pretty, seemingly pretty straightforward standard of what it means to not take a life. Don't murder. But then Jesus raises the standard, as he does throughout the, his entire life of teaching. And he says that everyone is, that is angry with his brother. Catch that. Not everyone who ever gets angry Big difference. Everyone who is angry with his brother. The object of the anger is what makes it sin. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. Being angry with our brother, which is another way of saying for Christians to be angry with each other. Being angry with our brother is sin. To be angry is not sin. To be angry at sin is righteous. To be angry at sin and what sin causes in this world, that is okay to be angry with. We know that, right? I thought about doing an illustration where I set up a table with a bunch of coins and stuff over here. I, I know myself and I would have definitely broken something, so I didn't do it. But Jesus, when he saw what they were doing in the temple and called them a den of thieves, right? He flipped over the table in the middle of the temple. He was angry at sin, angry at sin, especially when it is manipulative and, and using God in a way that's not supposed to be, to be used. But angry with a brother, that's dangerous ground, Jesus tells us here. And the word there, that he, or the first word there in the original language is raka. It'd be like saying you, you're, you're empty-headed, 
You know, you're, you're an idiot would be another way you could say that in English. Not a very nice way, but a way to say it. It's not, it's not particularly vulgar at all, really and truly. What Jesus is saying here, it's not vulgar language. It's, it's angry contempt with someone, right? You, you fool, you moron, you idiot. Like you're, you're, you're angry with them in a contemptual way. What's he trying to say here? He's, trying to, he's saying very specifically, actions murder the body, but words can murder the heart. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when your heart gets murdered, it hurts worse. Sometimes nothing hurts worse than your spirit getting broken by someone saying something that hurts. And the whole point is that both of these, murdering the physical body or murdering the spiritual heart, both of these are born out of unsettled anger. They're born out of unsettled anger. Anger that you're not dealing with. Anger that is not reconciled. Anger that is self-righteous and misplaced. And he says there that leave your gift and first go being reconciled. If you realize that there's something wrong between you and another brother, you and another sister, you and another believer, especially in the, in the context of the local church. If you realize there's something wrong with you, Jesus is, is saying, don't worry about bringing the envelope and setting it in the plate. That's not near as important as you go in and being reconciled to the person that you need to ask for forgiveness for or offer forgiveness to, whatever the case may be. See, he doesn't differentiate between the offender and the offended. Neither one is, is, is responsible first to go. They're both responsible first to go. You may be the offender, you may be the offended, but either way, when you realize you should do everything you can to be reconciled to your brother. Unsettled anger, unreconciled relationships render our worship futile. Our worship futile. Right? We can't, we said it last week, treat each other like dirt. We can't Live with harbored unforgiveness, with bitterness towards each other, but come in here and sing songs and put something in the plate and, and open up our Bibles and act religious and think that everything is okay between us and God. God says that if it's not okay between you and me, then it ain't okay with you and Him. That's a big standard to live up to. That's a tough one. Reconciliation is greater than religion. <clears throat> How do we come to this mindset? You have to realize that you, not just realize, believe, understand and believe that you are no more righteous than the person that you're angry with. You're not, regardless of what has happened. You're not more righteous than they are. So there's no justification for your anger towards the person. Sure, anger at what happened? Absolutely. Angry at them? They're just a sinner like you are. There's only one that is righteous, and you and I aren't it. Moving right along, because everybody loves to be told they're not righteous at all. <laughs> Number two of these six statements, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of, your, one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, these statements, I mean, they're just, if you really think about them, like that's hard to hear, right? That if I realize that I have sinned, that I should gouge out my eye if it was because I saw something or cut off my hand. It's like, it was hard to hear then. It's hard to hear now. Like, that's really the standard to which I have to live up to. That's really the standard of God. That's God's righteousness. That's how serious we are to take these things. And then the simple answer, yes, it is how serious we are to take these things. But in a more detailed answer, otherwise I'll just sit down and be quiet. But I tell you, he says, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. That's a tough one. I've probably had more casual conversations about that with guys, Christian guys, than maybe any other thing ever. Like, does Jesus really mean that if we look at a woman lustfully, that it's like, well, that's what he says. So I assume that's what he means. I assume Jesus means what he says. That's what he said. So, yeah, that's what, he, that's what he means. That's the hard one, right? What does he mean by that? It's, it's like this word here looks at. It's, it's the purpose of feeding his inner sensual appetite as a substitute for the act. One more time. It's the purpose of feeding his inner sensual appetite for the purpose of substituting the actual act. In other words... It's not seeing someone that is beautiful or seeing someone that is handsome and recognizing that they're beautiful or that they're handsome. That's not what it's talking about, thankfully. That's not what it means. It means seeing someone that is beautiful and in your mind doing exactly what you would do physically, but you're just doing it in your mind. You're lusting. You're desiring for a prohibited act. You're desiring for a prohibited relationship. You're desiring in your mind what you know you can't do physically. But it's not saying, oh wow, she's really pretty. Oh, I just committed adultery. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's, it's not the same thing. It's talking about appetites, really, right? And the problem with appetites is appetites lead to action, right? If you get hungry enough, you're gonna eat. If you get thirsty enough, you're gonna drink. If your sexual appetite, if you linger there, if your lustful appetite, if you linger there, you're going to act eventually. And so he's saying, don't live there mentally or physically you will. Now, obviously, the desire and the deed right, are not, are not equal or identical in consequence. Obviously, me thinking about a woman and actually committing the act have two totally different consequences in the real world, right? And Jesus isn't saying that that the consequence of these things are the same in the world, right? And we, we know that. I mean, obviously, literally murdering someone has a greater consequence in this world than me being angry with a brother. Literally committing adultery has a greater consequence in this world than just thinking about doing something that I shouldn't do. But he is saying that spiritually, as far off as righteousness is concerned, they're equivalent. 
And that's the point of what he's saying. Remember what, where we left off last week. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The point is, you scribes and Pharisees think you're righteous and you are light years away from God's righteousness. Light years. An entire galaxy You measure by each other and you think that because you did a few good things that now all of a sudden you are somebody and you can puff your chest out and you're good and you're nothing compared to God's righteousness. It's so far off the bar graph that you can't even see where it goes. That's the point that Jesus is trying to get across here is the the actual level of righteousness that God is. How righteous he is. Because you're either righteous or you're not. You can't be 99% righteous. If you're 99% righteous, you're 100% unrighteous. That's how that works. So Jesus, he uses hyperbole here, right, to explain. He's he's using hyperbolic language, language that's over and above and beyond to make a point. Remember, they didn't have this beautiful book to carry around that we take for granted. He had to speak in a way that you would remember it so you would know how to act and what to do. So he's speaking hyperbolic about the seriousness of sin and the consequences of sin. And he says, literally, like, if, if your eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Obviously, because sight and, and touch are two things that lead to sexual actions that are inappropriate. But it's not, it's not literal. How do we know it's not literal? So I thought we should take the Bible literally at its word. How do we know he's not literally saying to do this? Because the whole point of the whole thing is about our inner desire, our heart. Okay, So unless you can go inside and surgically remove whatever it is inside of us that causes us to sin as sinful human beings, then and only then could you actually cut out what is causing you to sin. The point is, take your sin seriously because your sin has serious consequences. He is making it clear the seriousness of sin. He does not literally mean that you should gouge out your eyeball if you lust after a woman. But he is saying that it's serious enough that you should even consider that if that's what you're doing. How do I know that? How do I know how serious especially this sin is? Just ask the Father. Just ask a Father that's destroyed his life for a few minutes of pleasure. That's what I figured. Hear crickets in here now. Just ask, the, just ask the man that destroyed everything he truly cared about so he could have a few minutes of physical pleasure. And then you know how serious sin is. Just, just, just ask the, the death row inmate, right? That in a fit of anger, when they were 17 years old, 18 years old, killed someone, and now spends the rest of their life in prison and or facing death. They'll tell you how serious anger, the appetite that leads to action, how serious anger that can lead to murder, how serious the consequences of sin are. We, it's not something that we play with, Christian. It's not. And we all have. In some way, shape, form, or fashion, we've all justified it, rationalized it, and and trivialized the seriousness of sin. We do it, unfortunately, entirely too often. 
but it's not trivial. It's got serious consequences. And so Jesus is saying here, when it comes to sin, don't play with it, don't trivialize it, don't justify it, don't taper it, like I'll just slowly wean myself off of sin. He's like, no, cut it off, right? Cut it off. It's like carbs, right? I'll taper off my carbs and, and, and then get into the right diet. He's like, no, just stop eating that junk and eat what you're supposed to, right? Huh. Nobody like that? Nobody wants to talk about eating carbs? All I did was make your belly rumble, didn't it? I'm hungry too. I'm already hungry. Number three, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now we're getting into dangerous territory, right? This is not easy words to hear. It's not easy words to hear at all. I mean, I come from a divorced family. My parents divorced, right? Some of you have, have been divorced and are, and are remarried, right? It's a, it's a, those are difficult words to hear if that is the case. I want you to catch a few things here. It says, everyone, talking to men, who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, catch that word there, causes her to commit adultery. Notice where it places the blame. Then place it on her. Why? Because she couldn't divorce. The wife couldn't divorce. Only the man could divorce. So the guy that had the responsibility of keeping his marriage together also has the responsibility for the consequences of choosing to divorce. Causes her to commit adultery. And then even says, if he goes on to remarry, then he commits adultery as well. The man, the man causes the, the divorce, but the man's responsibility was to keep the marriage together, so therefore the consequences of his decisions are also on him. Jesus says here in this, in this little section that the only reason in this case that God permits a physical union that he created, a oneness that he created, the only justifiable reason for a man to divorce a woman is if that physical union has been broken because he put it together and he says the only reason you can break it is if one of you has chosen to break that union by being with someone else. Otherwise, a man does not have a justifiable reason to divorce a woman is what Jesus is saying here in this, in this little bit. Now, He's referencing Deuteronomy 24.1 is what he's referencing, which I'll read to you right here. It's on the screen. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something improper about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Okay? This is the, this is the, the scripture in question of the day in Jerusalem. Okay? This is the scripture in question. Like, okay, well... This is what we do with rules and laws, right? What does he mean by displeases him? Like, how far does that go, bro? Right? Which is immediately what we do when it comes to laws and rules and things like that. That's why, as, as a parent, the fewer rules you can have, the better off you are for your children, I'm just telling you. Like, try to get one or two or three like really good ones that cover a lot of stuff, because otherwise all they're going to do is look for loopholes. 
to try to get around them and try to justify the things they're going to do that they shouldn't do, right? Check this out. This is from uh, the Mishnah, which is the, the written down oral tradition of the, of the rabbis, the rabbinic traditions through the years. And they've, they've written it down. And they were considered equal to Scripture during Jesus' day. Okay? So here's some other reasons that you could divorce. Here's the over-explanation of this verse right here. Um, other specifications. The following women may be divorced. She who violates the law of Moses causes her husband to eat food which has not been tithed. She who vows but does not keep her vows. She who goes out on the street with her hair loose. Or spins in the street. Or converses with any man. Flirts, in other words. Or is a noisy woman. What is a noisy woman? I don't, it is one who... <laughs> is it somebody that like, speaks in their house too loud or where their neighbors can hear? I don't, I don't know. Right? And the list goes on. If she oversalts the food, if she burns a dish, this is all in the rabbinic tradition. These were all justifications in Jesus' day for why a man could divorce a woman. Right? So, <laughs> Jesus is saying, this is how I would have started if I were him. Right? This comes back up in chapter 19 again. They come back and they, and they quote this specific this specific uh, scripture. That's how we know that Jesus is talking about it now because it gets talked about it again later and he answers it again there. Right? It's a permission, not a commandment. They acted like it was a commandment. Get the difference? Moses giving a permission for how to move forward in a sinful world is not the same as Moses saying you have to do this if this happens. Two totally different things. And they were trying to act like it was a command. It's a permission, right? Think about this. Marriage came before sin. You thought about that? God described what it was for Adam and Eve to be together. This is why a man leaves his mother and his father and is joined to his wife. And they become one, right? That was before sin. And that's where Jesus goes to. He's like, look, here's the way it was supposed to be. Man, woman, come together as one. What God has, separ- what God has brought together, let no man separate, is what he says. That, that's the ideal for marriage. But the problem is we don't live in the ideal world, do we? We live in a sinful world. Right? So this permission for divorce is a way forward after sin. It's not a command, and it's certainly not God's desire that someone divorce. But that's what they were acting like. Now, there were two main rabbis during Jesus' day. We know this because of extra-biblical historical writings. Hillel and Shema, okay? two rabbis. And one taught that this scripture from Deuteronomy right here, one taught uh, Hillel that that... It was, had a very lax view. Anything that, the man cho- that, anything the man considered displeasing was justifiable means for divorce. And, and then Shimei was the one that said, no, he, he means specifically sexual sin right there. And only sexual sin or sexual dissatisfaction. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual sin. And Jesus says what God unites, only God can allow to be separated. And the only thing that allows that to be separated is when the 
human being through sin has chosen to physically bind themselves with someone else and has broken the oneness that God has brought together. The point is marriage is serious, right? And the point of these laws was to protect the vulnerable. And there was no one more vulnerable than a divorced woman in the ancient world. No one more vulnerable. The whole point of the entire thing is to make it very difficult to divorce and cause time to take place before you decide that you think you're going to get a divorce to the time that you actually do it so that hopefully reconciliation could take place. Hopefully you recognize what it is that you're doing and you can, you can perform some type of reconciliation. That's the desire even with this law, right? You had to go get a legal document. It wasn't like there was a lawyer on every corner to get this legal document. There, it, was, it, was, it was trying to keep this from happening, but they had twisted it to mean, hey, just go get a piece of paper and send her on her way and then go marry somebody else and just do whatever you want because whatever. That's not how God deals with stuff, right? Here's the other thing about the Sermon on the Mount. It's a sermon, right? It's not dealing with every single situation that has ever come up in the history of mankind. It's not every theological point ever that needs to be made about Jesus and about Father God and about everything that could possibly happen. That's not what it's doing. That's what the Old Testament law kind of sort of tried to do. 600 and some odd later, it still wasn't even close to all the things and, and, and imaginative ways that you and I can figure out to sin against each other. Like, we're really good at sinning. If we had to write a law for every time that how to deal with every sin, I don't know that we could write a book big enough to, care, to cover all of that. And that's Jesus' point again. He's, <laughs> stop trying to do that. That's not what we desire. We as in Father God and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You say, well, with that in mind, because it doesn't say anything about this, right? What about abuse? Right? That's a question you get as a pastor these days. Because that's what Jesus said. But then in reality, here's what we deal with. Right? A woman comes into your office who's being physically abused. Would Jesus allow her to be divorced? What do you think? He didn't say it right here. Did he? That's why context is key. A woman couldn't divorce a man in Jesus' day. Couldn't do it. Wasn't even a concept. Wasn't something that you could even, would even talk about. Right? Now, she had one way to get a divorce. How could she do that? Without sinning. She can make that sucker so daggum miserable. That he would choose to get a divorce. Right? So just saying. <laughs> well, what about abandonment? What about the husband just up and leaves? Takes off on this. Right? Here's my interpretation of that. If the husband and wife are one. Right? One body. Is it okay for me to physically abuse myself? Am I, am I dishonoring what God has created if I physically abuse myself? I think so. If I'm physically abusing half of who is me now as one in marriage, am I dishonoring what God has brought together as one? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
to me, it's just common sense. Again, Jesus wasn't describing everything that was ever going to possibly happen throughout history. He's, he's trying to be the opposite of that, the opposite of legalistic. What's the heart of the situation? It's a tough one, though. I agree. That's a tough one. Number four, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair, white or black, or grow. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Again, they had taken this idea of, of, of an oath, and they, had to, and they had differentiated what was a more serious oath. Well, if you swear by heaven, that's, that's a little more serious than if you swear by your, the hair on your head, right? And Jesus is like, look, dude, like God made it all, even the hair or lack thereof on your head. So don't swear by any of that stuff because you don't really and truly have the right to swear by anything, nor should you have the need to swear by anything, which is really the main point that he's trying to get across here, right? This is echoed more than just right here in Scripture. James talks about it. It says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. We just did a whole series on twisted truths and the importance of being an honest, truth-seeking, truth-telling person. That's what Jesus is saying. Be so truthful and known for your truthfulness and known for your honesty that when you say yes, the person believes you. And when you say no, the person believes you. Literally, we put an article there. Be, yes, be, yes, and no, be, no. In English, we put the article there. But literally, it's let your yes, yes, and let your no, no. I like that if you think about it. Let your yes, yes, let, let it have the effect of a yes and let your no, no. In other words, truth loses itself in wordiness. I'd write that down if I were taking notes. Truth loses itself in wordiness. Get to the point. Get to the point. Five. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other one also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Whew. I don't like this one. It's one of my least favorite ones of all of them. I don't like the idea that if someone is, is offensive to me, right, or is, or, is, or is rude to me, especially for being a Christian, that I have to just take that. I don't like that idea. If you do, good for you. But I don't like it. But that's what I'm called to do. Oh, you stupid Christian. How can you believe in that stuff? I tell you, I'll just dadgum show you how I can believe in it. That's what I want to do. <laughs> but, but Jesus says that I shouldn't do that. He says it's not the right way to handle it. Okay, I believe him. I trust him. I don't like it. The thing that they were trying to do in this situation when it comes to eye for an eye or tooth for tooth was that it was a command for retribution. In other words, you lose an eye, then you are commanded to take an eye. You lose a tooth, you are commanded to take a tooth. Right? That's not the original intent of the law, and Jesus makes that clear here. It's not a command for retribution. That's not what it is. It's a 
limit. It's a maximum for retribution. And Jesus is saying, even when it is right, even when you do have the right for these things, doesn't necessarily mean you should exercise that right. Even if it would be justified in taking the eye, show a little grace instead. Don't be a... (laughs) Don't be a demand my rights type of person. And I got a picture that can describe that. And this poor girl, I don't know her from Adam, and she may be a great person, but she has become the poster child for triggered outrage, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't be easily triggered and easily outraged. Uh, Lee, I used to say that in my classroom all the time over there, like, you guys got to harden up a little bit. We can't be this soft as a society. As a Christian, we can't be this soft that we have to demand our rights every time we get it. Y'all know who, some of y'all knew who I was talking about before I ever put it up there, right? Don't be that. I'm not saying she is. She might have got caught in a picture at a bad time. But don't be what that represents. I got my rights, and you're going to live by them, and you're going to hear them. Jesus is like, no, man, don't do that. Should we stand up and fight for principle? Certainly. Should we fight just for justice, fight against injustice without a doubt? But we should be willing, as we are doing that, to lay down our rights, to take insults, to take offenses, for it to cost us something, Jesus says here. If you're sued, give them more than what they're asking for. We should be willing to do that. It's like, man, these standards are ridiculous. Number six, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the righteous, unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We'll make this one real quick and short, okay? Because we could spend a series on just this, but we won't. Loving the unlovable is what God does. Are you ready? How do we know that? Second slide coming. Are you ready? How do we know that God loves the unlovable? We know that God loves the unlovable because he loves you. And me. And I can promise you, I ain't easy to love. And somehow he finds a way to love me. Loving the unlovable is what God does. And if you ever forget that or who that is or what that means, just look in the mirror and remember that he loves you. And you're just as unlovable as whoever it is you want to point a finger at. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word there is teleos, having reached its end, mature, complete, perfect. Right? What are we saying? We're saying this is the standard. Catch that, Christian. The standard for being a Jesus follower is to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The goal is supernatural transformation, not behavior modification. You cannot behavior modify your way into this standard. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. Just modify their behavior, but being disgustingly ugly on the inside, but covering it up with a bunch of stuff to do on the outside. When you can perfect, when you can be perfect, excuse me, as your heavenly Father is perfect, then and only then can you judge. 
who is righteous and unrighteous. And guess what, friend? You and I can't be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the whole point of these standards is so that you and I understand that we can't be righteous apart from Jesus. And that God's good enough to love you anyway, even though you're so far away from what the standard actually is. We'll finish it with this last slide. So what is the standard? We are to be wholly sanctified and complete in our maturity. Holy, sanctified, complete maturity is the standard for a kingdom servant. Only with a repentant, born-again, transformed heart from God is this possible. And only because of God's grace is that possible. So if you ever start to think that you're starting to be pretty good, just go back and look at these six things and be honest and remember how many times you hadn't even come close to fulfilling any of these and remember that because of that how good God is and because of that then we should be loving each other the way he loves us God we come to you today and we thank you for your love and your grace we thank you that you are good Lord in spite of how wicked we are Lord we thank you that you love us we thank you that you care for us we thank you that in spite of your righteous standard, God, that you don't just discard us, but you make a way for us to be reconciled to you, God. Give us the desire to be reconcilers with each other, Lord. Thank you for Jesus and the price that was paid on the cross for us to be reconciled to you, Lord, forever. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.